0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Teach Write, the podcast for first-time instructors, experienced instructors, and anyone else interested in learning how to teach writing. I'm Daniel Anderson, and we're coming to you from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I have three guests with me today, and I'll go ahead and let them introduce themselves.
1: Hi, I'm Lexi. I'm a second year in the program, and this is my first year teaching.
2: Uh, I'm Alex. Um, I'm not affiliated with the university in any way. The door was open and I just put on this pair of headphones. I'm also a first year PhD student uh, and this is also my first year teaching at the college level.
3: I'm Emily Singeisen. I'm also a first year PhD student and this is my first time teaching at the college level as well.
0: Great. So we uh, read two articles um, that we'd like to take up in this conversation. The first one was called Multimodality in Motion and it was multiply authored. There were a lot of authors on there, we'll put the the link in the um, posting for the podcast. But it was about access, accessibility, disability. And one of the things that I uh, liked about it was the way that it couched disability not as something that some people had, but as a quality that everybody sort of feels and participates in in different ways as we go through life. So I don't know if you all have initial thoughts on that notion of kind of flipping the script on what it means to be disabled and thinking of it as a blanket way of understanding how we go through life. Yeah, um,
2: I've taken courses in the past on disability studies or intro to disability studies, and I think it's actually a helpful concept to work with specifically um, considering ourselves as temporarily able-bodied persons where Uh, Ability and disability is really a continuum or a spectrum, and as we go through life, we might find ourselves uh, in various positions on that spectrum, Um, whether it be injury, uh, illness, uh, what have you. uh, We tend to fluctuate to either extreme, sometimes without warning, sometimes very gradually. Uh, But the notion that ability and disability isn't this dichotomous binary, but rather it's something we kind of slide between, um, I find to be helpful.
3: I also find it interesting thinking about uh, as i was reading considering academia as uh, physical labor which is something that seems kind of uh, counterintuitive often but thinking about the physical strain of of academic labor Was something that I was thinking about and I think at times it's easy to because each one of us falls somewhere on that continuum of um, being able bodied or being disabled to only sort of understand our own embodied experience and therefore like not picking up on. The different abilities of students. Um, I think it can feel a little bit overwhelming as a teacher trying to create assignments or engage with students who have various different levels of, of physical ability. But I think it's for me, like reading through all of these, it was a call to create a classroom that's more flexible. So while I can't create given assignments that somehow are, are effective or that encapsulate the physical embodied experience of all of my students. I can create a classroom in which students um, have the freedom to be able to participate at varying different levels depending on what their experience is.
0: I like that, and I want to come back to the classroom that we create and how this translates into nuts and bolts moves that we can make as instructors, but I'm really intrigued by your reference to the physicality and the embodied nature of teaching. And I, I know in our discussion postings on this, someone made this posting about how academic work is counted as virtual in some some ways, that we think of ourselves as locked into books and there's nothing physical about it. It's all mental work, but um, this is embodied. There's a physical aspect to it. So I don't know. I'd like to think about that a little bit more as what that means for uh, an instructor, an intellectual How do we bring our bodies into these physical spaces?
3: I I don't know if anybody loves The Office. Like, I love The Office. But it reminds me of the safety training episode in which, like, the, you know, there's sort of this, like, Michael Scott is really upset that, you know, the biggest threats are, like, carpal tunnel syndrome and, like, being inside too much. (laughs) But I do think at the same time, like, there is sort of that feeling of, like, as we read, as we write, as we are engaging in sort of digital research, like, there, there are actual impacts on our bodies, whether that's like your back hurting after sitting for too long or whatever. And I think that the more that we can rather than feel kind of sort of this embarrassment of saying, yeah, my back hurts because I've been sitting for seven hours, like reading all of these articles that might feel trivial. But I think at the same time, beginning in that space is a, what helps us to recognize the the spectrum of embodied experience. Um, but it also helps us to connect what we're doing mentally with the physical act of research of writing of teaching.
1: Yeah, I guess after um, I was a little self-conscious after being peer like observed just in like the physical space because I don't ever really self-consciously like think very hard about like how I present in front of a class. But then having like an observer there, I was like, I usually kind of just sit here or like I'll pace around, but it just felt like really odd. And so just thinking about how like your physical body is kind of an instrument too with teaching and like how it can affect conversation or discussion with students and things like that as well. I don't know. It's just something I hadn't really thought about much before.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I like that, Lexi, because I think it calls for a kind of empathy or at least a shared positioning. If I feel awkward in a space or if I'm like wondering about what is my presence in this space, I can imagine others in the same space probably do as well. So, you know, we take it for granted that everyone walks in and feels comfortable or what have you, but that's probably not the case a lot of times. And there was um, one of the quotes in, in this article had to do with presence and I think they were arguing that we should expand our definition of what presence means. Maybe you can be present in different ways, and maybe that works for this kind of array of postures that we have for how to be in the world in some ways. So I don't know if there's, maybe this can be a way for us to pivot to some of the tangible aspects of how do we work this into a classroom? Are there things we can do physically in the space? What can we do with this idea of presence in a, in a classroom? Yeah, I think in the article where that was mentioned, there was
2: some um, discussion or pushback around the idea of uh, focus on absence or uh, people reading on screens or laptop screens or cell phones and what that says about them being present or to what extent they are present, uh, as opposed to just a purely physical um, just presence in the room. Uh, and I think the authors took the opinion that uh, one can be present in a variety of ways, whether that's on a laptop screen or a cell phone screen, they asserted that it's not only commonplace, but it's you know could be beneficial to reception of information and creating that accessible communicative space i'm not sure how i personally feel about that and in, and in the classroom in particular if you have the chance to observe students in that environment who are on their cell phones who are on their laptops i think there's a very long very wide very diverse spectrum of activities that are both uh supportive and totally contradictory of what the authors are talking about i don't think it's again i don't think it's this like simple dichotomy Uh, i think that presence on laptop screens and cell phone screens can be horribly counterintuitive to uh, kind of focusing or trying to channel like a focused lesson or discussion of a topic or something like that Uh, i think it's largely context dependent i think there's a lot of potential there Uh, but in terms of formalizing that i'm i'm not sure what that would what that would look like Uh, but it certainly is a more expansive idea of presence or what it means to be present in the classroom.
3: And I think that a more expansive definition is like definitely needed, but it almost feels like COVID in some ways counterintuitively has narrowed how we view accommodation or expanding what presence means because you start talking about accessibility and presence and immediately it's like a discussion about Zoom and hybrid classrooms which i think in a lot of ways actually hindered accessibility in my experience teaching at the secondary level because my my presence in the classroom was then torn between students on a screen and trying to keep them engaged which was a completely different medium and methodology than working with students in the classroom. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it also has bearing on how the physical space is arranged. Can we sit in a circle? Do we have to sit with, you know, me in the front and this is conveying this kind of hierarchy? So I don't have an answer, but I, I agree that different definitions of presence are are needed. I just don't know how we see beyond kind of what, you know, is is left in the wake of COVID.
0: A practical way in the 50 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes you have in a classroom, are there ways of making presence more flexible or making opportunities for people to be present in different ways? Uh, And the bias is toward physical presence, what we normally think of sitting, looking to the front of the room. What could we do to tweak that 50 minutes to allow different kinds of presence. And in some peer
2: review workshops or class periods where we do peer review, I don't mandate physical presence for the entirety of the class period. Um, So if two people are working in a shared Google document, they don't have to be physically next to one another or in like, you know, actual proximate positions to one another, they can be working on this in any given location. Um, So on the one hand, it's very cool like though you can expand what what it means to be and you don't have to require um, or kind of insist on this bias of the superiority of physical presence in the classroom but on the other hand uh, you have to have a certain level of trust uh, with your students and you kind of have to have this um, kind of palpable sense of rapport that they're actually going to do what you are entrusting them to do uh, but at the end of the day these are in our context these are freshman level college students Um, and when left to their own devices, one can only, I guess, speculate as to what they will do at that time. There's just, I think there's as much potential for for this going awry as it is to go very well.
0: Would something like, um, let's say you're gonna have a discussion and the typical model is someone's in the front and we're just speaking out loud with our voices, but what if everyone got onto an instant messenger or a chat and we just say for 15 minutes today, nobody's gonna use their voice We're all going to just use our fingers and we'll have a conversation that way. I like the appeal of that because it's not identifying a couple of students or some students. It's everybody doing something in a different way. So I'm wondering if there are other tactics that are similar.
1: There was one part of Zoom that I did appreciate was like the chat function in classes because you could respond like in the moment. And I've always wondered if there's a way to kind of incorporate that, like you were kind of mentioning, like in class, because I am an anxious student. I have a hard time speaking up. So I remembered that was like one of the one advantages of like Zoom was having that option to kind of just put my thoughts in there. And then, um, you know, the professor could come back to it or something like that. Or I could ask a question like in the moment and I didn't have the pressure of like raising my hand and becoming the one speaker view box or something like that.
0: I like that a lot. And it makes me think that one of the takeaways from an article like this or from this kind of conversation is that multiple pathways are often going to accommodate more people than any single pathway. I mean, it seems like kind of common sense, but, but having multiple ways to participate is probably helpful. And then the other piece that's in here is The premise behind that is that everybody is different. There is no one kind of student. There's such a big array of types of learners. Then the challenge, I think, for an instructor is how do you manage that diversity? I mean, at some point, you have to have something that's somewhat standardized, I think, in an an instructional environment. But if everybody is somewhat different, then where do you strike that balance?
3: I also think the question for me is like, to what extent am I meeting students where they are and to what extent am I sort of not pushing, but helping them to become more comfortable with more standardized, you know, methodologies and and modes of of being? Because I also recognize that part of what we're doing is, um, and this, this might sort of bridge the two readings, but part of what we are doing is teaching them to work within the constraints of certain genres. And so while we can create a classroom that's more accessible, that's recognizing the spectrum of student student backgrounds, student experiences, student abilities, we're also preparing them for a world in which those accommodations might not be there. And so to what extent are we hindering them by not defining presence in a very standardized way or teaching them to communicate verbally if, if they are more visual or if they struggle with various, uh, you know, skill sets or abilities that are for verbal thinking. I don't know. Yeah,
2: no, I I think that's an excellent point. Um, And I think that's one of the kind of uh, qualms I have about the two pieces in general is that we can make our classroom as accessible as humanly possible and provide every, uh, you know, entry point to participation and presence and all of that. Uh, But if this isn't, implemented on an institutional level uh, or a a systematic level, then are we doing the students a favor? Are we actively, you know, are are we doing a good enough job or adequate job of preparing them once they leave our classroom and uh, go to their next year or leave the university and go into the workforce where such accommodations might be Uh, much more heavily stigmatized or disincentivized and so on and so on. So, But I think if we want to implement that change on any widespread level or kind of create a framework where this is possible, it has to start somewhere. And I think that's what Shipka and uh, the other piece is ultimately trying to do, even though I I think it was somewhat uh, dated. But I think think we made a a lot of progress on the university level since then, even if a lot of it has been through retrofitting, Um, I think... You know, we, we have made progress since 2006 or 2010. In the last 10, 15 years, I think we've made tremendous strides at the university level.
0: So this might be a good segue to talking about the other piece that we read, which was um, uh, negotiating rhetorical, material, methodological, and technological differences, evaluating multimodal designs. And I think one aspect of the overlap was this idea of open-endedness for intellectual work. Um, so, you know, if we're talking about a bunch of different abilities that students bring to a classroom, this piece, I think, pivots and asks them to choose their own options for how they want to respond to an assignment prompt in some way. So what did you all make of that? Does that seem like a healthy approach or does it evoke the same kind of challenges that that we've been talking about already? It definitely is evocative of the same kind of challenges. But nonetheless, I think it's a
2: very healthy approach. Um, I think it's an excellent thing to keep in mind. Um it seems very high-flung, like the the projects um, seem very lofty. Uh, and in just a, in an introductory writing course, in, in ENGO 105, it seems like I would absolutely love to create projects that were referenced in that piece. I would absolutely love to do that. Uh, but I guess as a first semester, first year instructor, um, trying to create those projects like in a conscientious manner, um, in, a, in a pragmatic manner, seems incredibly challenging. And Shipka acknowledges this herself, saying that you know, this might entail a lot more work for the instructor. And this might be actually a a reason why the instructor might not bother at all uh, in trying to maybe experiment or create more open ended assignments. But I think the upside in doing that is, is huge. It's, it's, it's huge. So yeah, I think it's kind of both. I think it's still very challenging, but also a a very healthy approach. Um, So I'm not sure how we mediate that going forward.
3: I think I was left with kind of the same question as before. Like, I feel like reading it, I really enjoyed the process-based nature of the projects that Shipka described. I loved the creativity and the abstract thinking, but I actually feel like in this day and age, like students in Gen Z, I feel like they actually have pretty refined capabilities to use this sort of abstract thinking when it comes to visual and verbal. And I think that a lot of that's because that's what they're doing every day on social media. They're finding sort of, even if it's a really kind of trivial example. Like they're finding ways to connect these random phrases and words to images that they're putting on Instagram or sampling audio on TikTok. Like that, it comes quite naturally. My students struggle to put together a thesis statement and then follow rational logic across six pages. Like that's not sexy. It's not Fun and flashy, but that's what they struggle with. They struggle with the linear logic. They struggle with articulating their ideas in that medium. So while I'm definitely interested in in those sort of conceptual frameworks and projects, I actually really feel like they're not the thing that students truly need. The other thing um, I know I keep going back to labor, but they're hard to grade. They're hard to structure. And even for writing assignments, I find that students need a lot of instruction and really want a rubric that they can can grasp. And so for those projects, I also feel like, especially for lower level courses that are being taught largely by graduate students, it then puts a lot on them as far as time and additional labor to craft and grade those.
0: Uh-huh. Them, you mean instructors?
3: Instructors, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of work to, yeah. to to operate with this vast diversity of projects that might come in. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Is there a middle ground? So, you know, rather than, say, make anything you want, a message in a bottle, is there somewhere where we can build that element of choice into an assignment um, but not overwhelm the instructors or, and and at the same time, guide students towards some projects that are going to be applicable for their next few years in college?
1: I feel like that's one of the benefits of having, like, the three units, too, is maybe you can offer it for, like, just one of the sections or something. And then also, I remember in undergrad, I was given the opportunity to make some of these assignments, but the professor usually would offer, you can just do a standard essay, and they would help coach you with that as well, but you could, they would give you the option to do, like, another sort of assignment. So maybe just having both of those options so you're not getting all of one or the other when grading.
0: Yeah, I like your evoking the unit structure, or the idea that it doesn't have to be a whole class that does this thing, you could do it in pieces. And I also think that ideally, the rhetorical awareness that writers would develop through the course of a, of a class, after first unit, second unit, by the third unit, it might be that you could say, now you know about some of these possibilities, why don't you pick which one you think is best? this situation, but it would be built on experiences that they had already kind of participated in. One thing that also jumped out at me about this piece, and I don't think it's a bad approach, but the assessment of these projects is geared toward a meta statement. So there's the project, and then the writer or participant stops and writes up what the project taught them or the choices they made during the project. So it's a good model for assessment for things that aren't, aren't standard because I'm assessing the writing around it rather than the project itself. But can you think of any challenges with that? The first question I had was, should students be doing the assessment in a course? What, what comes into play when the students rather than the instructor are responsible for assessment? It's a it's a good question and, and it's a concern that I think deserves a lot of attention.
2: I think when I when I read this idea of evaluating creative projects like those that were mentioned in the Shipka article through this composition of statements and choices and uh, or statements of statement of choices and goals, I think one of them that they mentioned. An example was, it was like 9,000 words, 20 pages in 9,000 words. And then, you know, I'm sure it was like absolutely fantastic to read. uh, And it's absolutely crucial in cultivating this sense of rhetorical sensitivity that is so championed by Shivka. But at the end of the day, we have to put a grade on it. Like we have to, uh, unless the university system, we can work out some deal with them that revamps the grading system to be more complementary or compatible with this style of curricular design or project design, that's, I think that's, at the end of the day, the the big challenge. It's like, and, and I acknowledge the fact that she does have a disclaimer where it's like, a lot of instructors, professors, like if when asked what distinguishes between an A and a B paper or a B plus and an A minus paper, Shipka kind of gives the impression that a lot of people don't actually know the distinction or the fine distinctions between those two. And I think that's that's definitely true. Um, so maybe we need to start there before we move to overhauling the evaluative system based on these more creative projects. It's definitely fraught with, with challenges.
0: Have you all ever participated in assignments like this where you were involved in the assessment or the grading?
1: I had um, a professor that would make us grade our papers when we submitted them and kind of give the reasoning. And then I had one like at the end of the semester that would make us kind of give a grade for our whole semester's work. And it does make you reflect a lot on like your effort it was also like just an awkward kind of thing as well because you don't want to give yourself like an A or something like that.
0: Yeah, I've um, heard of assignments where an argument is called for and arguments require evidence. So a student would create an argument for why they warranted this grade or that grade. The researcher found it very helpful, like students tended to actually honor where they thought they were supposed to be in many ways, and and we're more plugged in to what it actually meant to perform in that way. So, I don't know. I think it's useful in some ways to um, make the learning outcomes something internalizable that gets reflected on and and put forward, but also creates some interesting challenges. because. uh, And you're making great points about institutionality, because even at the end of the day, if students do this assessment and write up a reflection that's doing you know meta awareness of all of this, then the instructor assesses that and submits a grade. So at some point the university demands a letter that comes through and the instructor puts that letter into the system. I think this overlaps a little bit with what we were talking about with the accessibility conversation as well, because it's linked up to institutionality. In your classroom, in you could do something but you're also going to be participating in a larger ecosystem that may or may not line up. So one of the things that I like about that, uh, the piece by Shipka, is it's about making choices. Um, The statements that students produce are about the choices that they made. Why did you make this choice? And I'm wondering if there's a way that the English 105 outcomes that we're all working on line up with that, or would they need to be rewritten to implement a pedagogy like that?
3: I think that in some ways it aligns with – I thought of these more as sort of a brainstorming methodology or process-based kind of project, which I think definitely works well within our curriculum and our our syllabi that are, you know, based on feeder assignments that that lead to a final project. I think that one of the things – that I was considering with this is giving students the context for understanding the relationship between like verbal and visual, like between different modalities, essentially, as kind of being the scaffolding prior to having them do an assignment like this. So I know a lot of us are incorporating, you know, podcasts or like my final project for the humanities unit is going to be sort of a close reading of um, a music video. And so finding ways to help demonstrate to them how they can take the logic or the rationale from one modality to another, I think would then help them to think critically about their processes when they actually do these sorts of brainstorming things and move from, you know, the visual, the tactile, the auditory uh, to the written word.
0: Yeah, I like that. And it's going to allow for kind of transfer of understanding from one modality to another modality. And depending on how you configure your class, if some of the choices They either get built in to the process ahead of time, you get to choose whether you want to make a podcast or a video, or they get reflected on afterwards, this is why I picked this item for my video versus that item. But at some point, thinking about rhetorical choices, I think is a core of what happens in a a class like a first year writing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And and I think 105 is designed very well for those purposes. I mean, there are so many choices to be made and so much liberty that the instructor has and the students have throughout the course and the units. I think 105 is very well suited to cultivating this rhetorical sensitivity that is so valued totally with that. I think the only... Uh, revision that could be made is what you were just mentioning, Dan, about just making this reflective, like, meta-commentary more explicit, creating spaces and opportunities for students to actually sit down and reflect on the choices they made and why they made them. I think a lot of that is most of the time kept implicit. So if we can just make that more of an explicit exercise, I think that's really the only revision I have in mind.
0: Fantastic. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. As with all of our episodes, I think there's more ideas on the table to be explored further but that's a healthy start. Um, So I invite all of our listeners to come back for another episode and let me thank Lexi, Alex, and Emily for a wonderful conversation and we'll talk to you next time.